Luke chapter 5, and we are following the beginnings of the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. And as we look at Luke chapter 5, and as we've been studying over time here, we are not surprised, or maybe we are surprised, at how quickly Christ begins to face opposition. You would think that Jesus Christ would not face opposition. After all, this is God in the flesh. He is bringing the good news to the people. And so you would think that he would be widely embraced, that he would be, in fact, accepted at large by all of those around, especially by those who are of the religious establishment. You would think that those who believe in God, who have a so-called relationship with God, those who talk of God, those who say they're following after God, would in fact embrace the one who came on behalf of God and who is in fact God in the flesh, the religious establishment. And yet, that is not the case. In fact, it is the religious establishment that finds Jesus Christ to be so much of a problem. It is the religious establishment that is in the constant mode of challenging Christ. It would be rather strange for us to think today that if Jesus Christ, by His grace and mercy, were to show up on this earth in the flesh again, that it would be strange for us that the church at large, what is called evangelicalism around the globe, the Protestants, the Catholics, the whoever else there is, the Mormons and everybody else who wants to claim some kind of religion of in and of themselves, that they would have a hard time with Christ, and yet we would find the very same thing taking place. Sadly, the very root of the challenge of Jesus Christ is the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is totally incompatible with the religion of human achievement. Let me say that again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is completely and utterly incompatible with the religion of human achievement. You may have never thought about it like that before. Maybe you've never really pondered it all that much, but there are only two religions in the world. I just named Protestantism and Catholics and and Mormons and Buddhists and Hindus and New Age and all these other things that call themselves religion, when in fact there are only two religions in the world. There is the religion of human achievement, and there is the religion of divine achievement. At the very core of both is the fundamental difference of how a person is justified before God. In other words, how can a man, being a sinner by nature, be able to stand before our holy God and be found not guilty for his sins? The Scriptures clearly teach us that man is guilty. No one is without excuse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory. Of God. We have studied at length this in our evening service as we are studying through the book of Galatians. It is the theological principle of justification 
The religion of human achievement says that man can be justified by doing the things of religious practice. Man can be justified by his own efforts, whether it's formalized in a religion by name or whether it's not formalized in a religion of just simply self-establishment. In other words, just by way of example, if the religious tradition says, pray this many times a week, go and do this, genuflect in this way, Uh, go to the temple and pray to a statue, go and into your own home and set up a a ritualistic altar of candles and incense, that you are to pray a certain times a week according to the rule and tradition. If you keep that, when you die and pass from this life to the next, when you meet the eternal judge that all will stand before one day, He will look at your prayer life, he will look at your activity, and if it matches the rule, if it lines up with the rule or with the tradition, then he will let you into his glory. And not only will he let you in, but because you have accomplished the very rule, he is obligated to let you in. Theologically speaking, you would be justified. The religion of human achievement may come in the form of all kinds of ritualistic things, whether that be reading of religious books, one of those being the scriptures, as some would call them, whether one believes simply that you read your Bible and by through that reading you become somehow justified before God because you are reading your Bible, you're acceptable to God. It might come in the form of some kind of parenthood in which you parent your children in such a way that you make sure that they go to religious schools and religious classes and and go through all of those kinds of things. And when they're home, you talk of even religious things. And according to society, you are a good citizen and you're not like any of the others who are not good citizens, and so thereby you are justified. This kind of religion might come in the form of ritualistic church attendance. You believe that if you go to the building, if you come to that place that's established as a quote-unquote church on the corner, whatever it might be, you faithfully go, then you are right with God. Maybe even serving in that place. Maybe even going through some kind of program that they have. You are right with God. This is the religion of human achievement. And so the religion of human achievement comes in all kinds of forms. It comes in formalized religions, and it comes in informal ways in which we carry ourselves out in our lives. And for the religious of Christ's day, it was practiced in the form of giving to the poor faithfully, or observing annual festivals and annual feasts, and fasts that were required by tradition. If you did those things, if you carried out those things, you will not only be considered a pious person in the midst of the community in which you live, but most importantly, you would be considered justified by the eternal judge. Well, Jesus Christ came with a completely opposite religion. It is the religion of divine achievement. 
The religion of divine achievement says that being justified before a holy God has nothing to do with human achievement at all. It has everything to do with divine achievement. Christianity, true Christianity, by faith in Jesus Christ, is the only religion, if we want to attach that word to it, it is the only religion that is the religion of divine achievement. The religion of divine achievement has everything to do with a relationship. has everything to do with a relationship that will flow out of which a desire to live in honor and glory to the one in whom has accomplished that divine requirement. And so the living of those who believe has no bearing on how someone is justified because justification is not attained through human achievement. It is attained through divine achievement. We could say it in a simpler way and use less theologically based terminology. We could say it this way, doing the deeds of religion will not justify anyone before God. Doing the deeds of traditions, doing the deeds of evangelicalism, doing the deeds of the traditions of men, the religious activities of men will do nothing to justify one before God. But having a relationship with the divine achiever, Jesus Christ, that will justify anyone and make them a new person so that they desire to do the deeds of righteousness because they are justified, not in order to be justified. So just by way of introduction, we can conclude simply that the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine achievement are completely incompatible together. In other words, they cannot be linked, they cannot be joined, they cannot be brought together in any kind of way. And this is exactly what we find in our study this morning. The reality of the incompatibility of the religion of divine achievement with the religion of human achievement. Total incompatibility of true justification with the justification that is brought about by human achievement. There is no sense of real justification in the religion of human achievement. Throughout the centuries, many have tried to simply attach the divine achiever, Jesus Christ, to their own human religious practices. They've tried to take the religion of divine achievement and bring Jesus Christ, the divine achiever, into their human religious practices. And Jesus is completely incompatible with that notion. Jesus is completely incompatible of being attached to a life just as another religious trophy. Just as another part of your religious practice in which you have something else by which you can now have in your pile of righteous goods. That's what we find here in this text this morning. Let me just read it for us. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, and going down through verse 39. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, 
You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Let's pray. Ask God to honor our time this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and right in every way. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding, clarity. Help us know exactly what these words mean by what they say, that we may follow you more diligently, we might be wise in how we live, all to your glory because of your mercy and grace upon us. Thank you for the Spirit in whose name we pray. Amen. I hope when you look at texts like this or any text in Scripture, you are thinking to yourself, okay, so what? So what does this have to do with me personally? Because each time we come to the text, we need to be thinking about that kind of thing. What do I do with this? And we need to be asking ourselves questions like, is there some kind of truth that I need to proclaim from this text? Is there is this text declaring some kind of sin that I need to be forsaking? Maybe there's an example here that I need to be following. Maybe there's a, a principle here that I need to be teaching or that I need to be proclaiming to somebody else. We need to be thinking in those kinds of ways when we look at these texts. And I want us to do that this morning as we think through this, because each one of us has a responsibility to take the Word of God into our life, to absorb it in, and then to practice what it's saying. And here in the text, Jesus is giving some clear instruction about this reality in which we see this comparison going on between the, the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine achievement. And the two are completely incompatible. And it isn't clear in this text, at least from the beginning of verse 33, how much time has gone by since Jesus was in the feast uh, with Levi that Levi had thrown him just some time before this, right? Remember from our last study here in Luke, beginning in verse 27 and going down through verse 32, Jesus had, had just saved, at least by society standards, he had saved one of the worst kinds of people in society. And remember, we talked about that, and we, we thought about that reality, and, and what if my sins are, are too bad? Can God save me? And we saw even in that text that no one's sins are too bad for God to save. Right? Levi is the worst of the worst. And yet Jesus says, follow me. He's a tax collector of the worst kind. And Jesus miraculously and marvelously displays his grace and mercy upon Levi. We know him after this point to be called Matthew. 
But Jesus calls him to himself. And then verse 33 comes along and it says, And they said to him, Who are the they? He was there talking with Matthew. His other disciples are with him, assumably Peter and James and John and some of the other fishermen that were already following. There's great crowds that have been coming with him following him everywhere. Jesus goes to Levi's house. Levi throws this big shindig in order that they might hear of Jesus as well, all of his colleagues and friends, these tax gatherers that he knew, the sinners as the Pharisees called them. And now in verse 33, it says, they said to him, who are the they? Well, from the nearest context of of this passage, it would be logical to say that the they there are the Pharisees who were complaining when Jesus was in Levi's home, right? Just a few verses up, verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with with tax gatherers and sinners? And so Jesus had just answered their question in verse 31 and 32. So it would be logical to say it's these Pharisees who are the they. And I believe in one sense we're correct to think that, but they can't be the only ones in the they group. There are others there. Why do I say that? Because if you go to Mark's gospel, to the parallel passage in Mark's gospel about this very event, Mark says that it's the um, it's John the Baptist's disciples that ask the question. So obviously John the Baptist's disciples are there. And then if you go to Matthew's gospel of the same account of this event, it says that the Pharisees are the ones asking the question. So both of those writers are giving an angle from which Luke chooses not to give the angle. Luke kind of groups it all together and says, and they said to him. So the indication is that both Pharisees and the disciples of John are there and maybe even standing alongside them or those who are in neither group. They're just some of the people and maybe even some of the tax gatherers and those who were with Jesus in Levi's home. So the indication is the group is rather large, and all of that, I think, makes sense to the context. Both the Pharisees, some of John's disciples were there, and they were all part of the religion of human achievement. They were all well-versed in that, and we can understand that about the Pharisees, right? They were the ones who were fastidious about the rules and keeping of the law. That is what they did. The Apostle Paul is one of those prior to his conversion. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he says in Philippians. So they knew the law. They wanted to keep the law. That is exactly how one got justified in their mind before God. But what about John's disciples? What about John's disciples? Well, apparently, some of John's disciples weren't listening very well when John was preaching to them. They weren't paying attention too closely. You remember, shortly after Jesus had been baptized by John, when we were studying through the Gospel of John, I know it was some time ago, but it's there. You can go back and look at it. John reminds his disciples that he is not the Christ. I am not the Christ. In fact, he must increase, I must decrease, he says in John chapter 3, verse 28 and verse 30. And so the clear implication of John's words to his disciples is that, you listen, you don't need to be following me. This isn't about human achievement. It's about the divine achiever. You need to be following Christ. Go after Christ. 
but not all of John's disciples began to follow Christ. You say, how do you know that? Because in the book of Acts, after Pentecost had happened in Acts 2, when the new church begins, and the apostle Paul gets saved in Acts chapter 9, you get all the way over to Acts chapter 19, and the apostle Paul happens to come in contact with some of those who were the disciples of John when he's in Ephesus. So, John, or, so Paul is in Ephesus, and he sees in Ephesus some of these disciples of John the Baptist. And in Acts chapter 19, he says to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Well, that's strange. Surely John would have preached that. They just weren't paying attention to that. We haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. John certainly saw the Spirit descending on Christ like a dove when he baptized him, so John knew that there was. No, we haven't heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he says, then into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul says to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Remember that? We studied that. John was saying, listen, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. There was an outworking of a true heart of repentance before them. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He was telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, Paul says. Who's that? He says, that is Jesus. And when they heard that, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they heard that, they finally believed. So some of this is this is a long time after Jesus was on the scene. So not all of them are following Christ at the time we see them here. But I believe that in that group of inquirers, while they're part currently of this religion of human achievement, they're they're confused in their minds because they really weren't paying attention that well. I think the disciples of John are actually sincere. They're sincere in their question to Jesus. How do, we, how do we reconcile what's going on here? And yet the Pharisees in that group, they're not sincere at all. I think the disciples of John actually want understanding as to how we reconcile you with what's going on. But they're unlike the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. They simply want to discredit Christ. They don't want anything to do with Christ. The disciples of John wanted to actually know. And specifically here in the context of this passage, I think they wanted to know, how does fasting fit into all this? How does the religious activity of fasting fit in? Even though the question comes with similar concerns about the teaching and activities of Christ. Why do you do this? So Jesus wasn't following the practices of the traditions of the religious activities of men. And they wanted to know why. How come you don't do what we do? What practice in particular are they talking about? The religious practice of required fasting and required prayer. So they state, number one, this perplexing question. This is what we find here in verse 33. The perplexed Question. They said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. Of the Pharisees, they do the same, but yours, your disciples, eat and drink. This is a simple question. Simple question. In their minds, there's a confusion between the clash 
of what Jesus brings and what they have been told and what they are living. It revolves around the religious practice of fasting. And I say fasting in prayer because prayer usually was included with fasting. And so it's included here. There's prayer here. You notice if you go back to Mark's gospel, it's even stated there. So the Pharisees fasted twice a week. This was their practice. They fasted twice a week. That's what they were required for piety's sake. If you were to be a pious person, one who kept the law, then you fasted twice a week. However, in Leviticus chapter 16, which is the book of the law, which is where this all flows from, Leviticus chapter 16, there is only one prescribed fast that was ever given by God, and every Jew needed to follow that, and that was during the Day of Atonement. It was only once a year. One day a year that you would fast. That required fast was to be done by all people in Jerusalem, not as a, as a means of gaining for themselves, but simply as a means of the requirement of remembrance, a memorial remembrance of sin. The reality that God, by His grace through the sacrificial system, had chosen a means by which their sin would be covered for a time. And the priest on the Day of Atonement would remember that for all the nation and sacrifice animals, and the people would fast on that day as a memorial of remembrance for God. So it was a fast that was born out of mourning, mourning, sadness a fast that was born out of a heart's reality of what was really going on because of sin. But as I said, according to Luke's gospel, if we were to go forward in Luke chapter 18, you don't have to do that, I'll just read it. The Pharisaical tradition had established a required fast that was not once a year, It wasn't simply the Day of Atonement. Certainly that was added to all of what they required, but they rather required you to fast twice a week, usually on the second and the fifth days of the week. If you were of the religion of human achievement, as most Jews were, then you would keep that ritual. You would be fastidious about following that very rule. Why? Because you wanted to be someone who was right before God. You would ritually, according to the law, be giving alms to the poor. You would carry out the prescribed prayers, as the Pharisees would say it. You would practice the twice-a-week fast. And of course, there are a host of other human achievements and traditions that were prescribed that you would keep in order to be righteous. In fact, it's quite telling about the foolishness of the Pharisees, the religion of human achievement, its incompatibility with the true gospel when Jesus says of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. You hear the words, beware, beware of the 
the righteousness of the religion of human achievement. Otherwise, you'll have no reward in heaven. Well, really? Yeah. When therefore you give alms, when you give, don't sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they might be honored by men. Don't let everybody know, hey, guess what? Look what I'm giving. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. This is exactly what the religion of human achievement does. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, they have their reward in full. Matthew 6, verse 5, and when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites. Why? Because they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. In order to be seen by men, they stand praying, and their public prayers are outward so that men could see them. Jesus said they have their reward in full. Matthew 6, 16, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. In other words, there is no heavenly reward i.e. justification gained through the religion of human achievement. Being justified before God has never been a matter of gaining justification through your own efforts at righteousness. So the justification that the religion of human achievement hold to is one of external rituals. External rituals that are worn on a vest of Religious badges, if you will, that are believed to justify you and really do not. It only marks those who practice those kinds of things as actual hypocrites, liars, play actors, those who are not real. This is something for us to think about, at least in our own lives, as we look at this, as we just dive in a little bit and, and start to swim around here in this passage. Religious ritual and religious routine can always be a danger to true holiness. The things that we practice, the things that we do, the things that we are about can be a danger to true holiness when it becomes something of our own achievement when it becomes something that we highlight and hold to as if we are somehow spiritual by means of those things. That doing those things makes me who I am and justifies me before God. It's a danger to true holiness because true holiness only comes through the religion of divine achievement. It doesn't come through your efforts. The ritual may, in and of itself, not be wrong. But if it becomes the goal, then it is a barrier to true righteousness because that is found only in Jesus Christ. We can oftentimes, sadly, and many do within evangelicalism, make going to church, make reading our scriptures, singing with singing religious songs, praying, all of those good things can become lifeless routines 
All of those good things can have no meaning at all before God when they are done without a heart of worship that is born out of a heart that truly knows Jesus Christ. Listen, you and I as Christians can come and hang out with God's people time and time again. If our heart isn't right before a holy God, then God is not being worshipped by us. So Jesus isn't saying here, don't do those things. He wasn't saying in Matthew 6, hey, don't pray, don't don't give to the poor, don't do any of those things. He's not saying any of that. Rather, he's saying you must do it from the right heart. The only heart that is right is the one that embraces Jesus Christ alone. Well, let's think about this for a minute. Think about it. Jesus was just at the feast with Levi if the feast of Levi that he held in his home fell upon the evening, either beginning days of the ritualistic fast of the Pharisees on the second or fifth day of the week. We don't know when Levi had that feast. It doesn't tell us. But if it fell on the evening of one of those those days, as far as John's disciples are concerned, they're fasting. The Pharisees fast. And here is Jesus eating and drinking. This is the premise of their question. They, they have seen Jesus operate, so it must have been around one of those times. The Pharisees do that. They do it certainly out of ritual. John's disciples are asking the concerned question. They're fasting most likely because by this time, John the Baptist had already been thrown in prison by Herod because he had confronted Herod so directly. And so they're probably fasting most likely because of that. And so from them, it's a sincere question. Hey, we're fasting. We're, our, our heart seems right. What, what are we to do with all of this? You don't seem to be fasting. So you have these two groups. They're both fasting, and Jesus and his disciples are feasting. And John's disciples are asking these questions. And so you have the perplexed question in verse 33 that we've looked at. They really want to know. Well, Jesus replies, secondly, by giving them the clarifying answer. Clarifying answer, verse 34 and 35. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But days will come. And when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. I'm always fascinated at how Jesus teaches. You know, we are, we are representatives of Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ in this world. And people ask us all kinds of questions. And Jesus, in being asked questions, seems to always come back with an explanatory counter question. I like that. Pharisee says, how must I, what must I do to be saved in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10? And Jesus says, what does the law say? I like that. Riddle me this, Riddler. I mean, that's kind of what's going on. Jesus asks an explanatory counter question that causes introspection. It causes them to think. It causes them to think internally as to why anyone fasts at all. Why are you fasting at all? That's the question Jesus is asking. And he gives the illustration of a wedding. 
we, we would state or could state the question this way. Should the friends of the bridegroom exercise at the moment of this bridegroom's wedding a time of mourning? When the bridegroom's there in this wedding while, while he's with them? Think about it. Jesus saying, listen, think about it. Weddings are celebrations. It's a time for celebrating. It's not a time for mourning. And in those days, a wedding would last several days. It wasn't just a moment in time as it is seemingly in our day. It would have been the responsibility of the friends of the bridegroom to make all the arrangements for the wedding. Some of you families who have daughters who are about to get married at some point in the future are going, man, I wish the bridegroom's friends would do that. That would take a whole lot off my plate. This was the responsibility of the friends of the bridegroom. They made all the arrangements for the celebration, not just for the day, but for the entire time of celebration, which lasted upwards of a week. In fact, according to Jewish history, those who were making the arrangements, by the way, for the celebration were even exempt from religious observances because the preparations had to be done. They they were exempt from that. And guess what that included? Fasting. Fasting was exempt for those who were doing a wedding. Why? Because a wedding was a celebration. And so Jesus' point is very simple, is that it would go completely against the spirit of a wedding for those who were attending the wedding to be doing something that they don't need to be doing because it doesn't fit. It's incompatible with the celebration. Fasting was clearly connected with mourning, and usually mourning was connected with some sinful reality, some some sin in your life, some struggle in your life, some difficulty in your life, as the Day of Atonement would signify. So Jesus is saying by using this illustration that there is no spiritual value here for you in fasting. There's no spiritual value in fasting, in performing some religious activity, some religious ritual when it has no relation to what is happening. There's nothing here in that for you. In other words, your question fails to recognize that your human achievement religion or your religion of human achievement is incompatible with the living gospel. Jesus says, here's what's going on. The, there's there's a, an eternal and celestial and God-honoring wedding feast going on. The bridegroom, I am here. You should be rejoicing, not fasting. And so he says to them in verse 35, but days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them then they will fast in those days. Taking away signifies a violent removal. That's the intent of the grammar here. And Jesus is prophetically speaking of his own crucifixion. Jesus says, listen, not long from now, there's a day coming. It's, it's, it's marching down the road in the time frame of God's redemptive plan. It is coming. That day for mourning is coming. And I will be violently taken away from those who are following me. They will on that day, they will mourn. They will fast. They won't think about food at all. 
At that time, it's appropriate to fast. At that time, fasting isn't something you have to think about. Fasting is just something that's natural in you. Now is not the time. It's not ritualistic. Now's the time for celebration. Jesus says, listen, your ritual that you are carrying out, your fast, the Pharisees' fast, all of those things that you do in the twice a week that the Pharisees have proclaimed is a bunch of hooey. It's human religious activity which does nothing. There will be a time for fasting, and it will come upon you, and it will be right. Jesus saying, listen, you can't take me and add me to your human achievement religion can't do it. They're incompatible together. And Jesus says, the present time, fasting is out of order. Fasting time will come and it will flow naturally. It will flow from a broken heart, from a heart that's mourning over what is taking place, but fasting that is ritual. Fasting that is an outworking in order to try to attain by some effort some kind of righteousness on your own, that kind only breaks God's heart. It doesn't do anything to move you. So the question about fasting is the greater question really about forgiveness, which Jesus spoke about before with the leper and the paralytic. Remember what he said to the paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven you, friend. And they said, what is this guy doing? Only God can forgive sins. He can't be doing this. He's a blasphemer of God, back in verse 21. The Pharisees are right there. They're watching it. And, And Jesus is invoking the reality of who he is. This is God in the flesh. And so he gives them an example. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to rise, say rise and walk? And of course, the physical reality is the objectiveness. You can't prove someone's sins are forgiven, but he certainly could say, listen, if I am God, I'll tell this guy to rise and walk, and that'll be show you exactly who I am. And so he says, listen, take up your bed, get out of here, go home, get up and walk. And the guy does that. But what's really going on here in the question in verse 33 and following is this idea between that which is forgiveness and ritual. Forgiveness comes only from God. Ritual is born in the heart of men. And so Jesus is saying, why do you emphasize internal things? The disciples of John, I think, were even asking this kind of thing. Jesus, you're, you're talking about the internal stuff. You, you've shown the reality of the internal things of forgiveness that only divine achievement can accomplish when religion of human achievement emphasizes external things. How do we mix those? You keep bringing up divine achievement, and they emphasize human achievement. Are those connected? Do they fit together? In other words, are they compatible at all? The answer to that question is obviously no, they don't. And Jesus gives the answer by giving two illustrations and a sad conclusion. Two illustrations and a sad conclusion. Notice the implications here in verses 36 to 39. 
And he was also telling them a parable. So he's been very clear. This isn't a time for mourning. This is a time for celebration. Mourning will come. Fasting day will come. This isn't that time. And I'll tell you a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. You can stop right there. These are clear illustrations that reveal the implication that we have been talking about, that justification through divine achievement is totally incompatible with justification through human achievement. Divine achievement is completely incompatible with any kind of human achievement. Human achievement resolves nothing for man before God. Notice first verse 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. And then, of course, he gives the conclusion if you do that. So on the surface, as you look at this, just just logically speaking, cloth in those days is mostly made of wool. It's made of linen, and nothing has changed in our day. Man has developed synthetics that do not shrink, and yet the idea is still the same. When you put something that is made shrinkable onto something that has already shrunk, it ruins both. That's the illustration. So it makes sense even on natural ground. You take something that is unshrunk and you cut it to the size of the hole you have and you sew it onto the thing that is already shrunk. The first time that you wash the new piece, the new will shrink and it will tear itself away from the old and both will be ruined more. Both are ruined. So in the same way. In the same way with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Same way with the religion of divine achievement. That's what we're talking about. The gospel of Jesus Christ alone. The religion of divine achievement. The new just becomes another work on the pile of human works. You can't add it. You can't take the gospel and add it to your pile of human works and assume that it's going to work for you. You attach Jesus to your life, and in doing so, both become ruined. You have taken Jesus and returned yourself, if you will, back to the old system. Jesus says you can't do that. Just like Paul said to the Galatians, when you take Jesus, when you say you believe in Jesus, and you take Jesus and just add him back, and you go back to your old with Jesus, guess what you've done? You've denied Jesus. You've severed yourself, Paul says in Galatians, from Jesus. You've not only ruined yourself, you've ruined the idea and the concept that you've tried to hold to, which is some concept of this thing called Jesus that is not the real Jesus at all. Why? Because faith in Christ alone, justification through divine achievement, cannot be connected to ritualistic religion. Cannot be cannot be connected to self-righteousness. This is 
part of the reality of what you find so often and always in the Catholic Church. The, the religion of, of human achievement attached with Jesus. Jesus is just another work. Just another thing on the pile of religious activity. Faith in Christ alone. Justification through divine achievement cannot be connected to ritualistic or the religion of human achievement because salvation by means of Jesus Christ, which brings about justification, only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. A relationship with the divine achiever and a righteousness that is not your own. The divine achiever cannot be connected to human achievement. He cannot. And secondly, he says that he, the divine achiever, cannot be contained in the religion of human achievement. Verses 37 and 38, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out. The skins will be ruined. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Again, very logical. Very clear, even for the logical mind. The skins of goats and other animals were used in ancient times to carry around liquid, all kinds of different liquids. They were the containers that we have. They, we have plastic containers that do a better job at this, and yet they had animal skins. And with age, those animal skins would become brittle. They would become hardened. They would become uh, less malleable, less stretchable, no elasticity. And so to put new or fresh, not fermented yet wine into an old container would mean the inevitable. That it would, once it fermented, once the gases began to release, as you had the whole thing closed off, it would expand the container we see people do that on the internet all the time with Mentos, dropping it in in Coca-Cola, and then plugging the cap on it. They think, oh, this is going to be great. What's it become? A liquid bomb. Destroys everything. Well, this is what would happen. This is the idea, right? The, the container expands, and the old skin already being stretched to its capacity just bursts under the pressure, and you have a twofold problem. Not only do you lose the wine, but you ruin the container. So it's a double loss. Can't do it. Can't try to contain the religion of divine achievement within the religion of human achievement. You ruin both. Both are useless. One is already useless, and then you add Jesus to it, and it's not the real Jesus. All is ruined. Jesus becomes something not defined as Jesus defines himself. So the only point Jesus is making is to say, in the same way, the only life that can contain true righteousness, the only life that will stand up under the judgment of God is the new life given by God through Jesus Christ. When a person repents of their sin and entrusts themselves to Jesus Christ for salvation, right? New wine must be put into Fresh wineskins. In other words, everything's got to change. Everything's got to change. 
Only when new wine is put into a new wineskin is someone truly justified, right? They are justified by the divine act of God through the divine achiever. It is God who does the justifying. It is God who makes new. It is God who pours in the new wine. The old wineskin is just the external stuff. Self-righteousness, human achievement, system by which someone does ritual things and hoping that they could be justified before God. Yet God, through Christ, brings new life. The old system cannot connect to Christ, nor can it contain Christ. You can't connect it to the religion of divine achievement. You can't contain the religion of divine achievement in the system of human achievement. And so the teaching of both illustrations is just that. New life of redemption in Christ cannot be connected, it cannot be contained in the self-righteous attempts of mankind at his own justification. Can't do it. New patch shows the old cloth to be worthless. The new wine was lost when it's put into old skins. It's all worthless. Why? Because divine, because justification is by divine achievement alone. Because the only righteousness that God accepts is His righteousness alone. The genuine righteousness of a, of a forgiven and clean heart cannot be enhanced. It cannot be enhanced by some kind of personal external religious effort. We, we don't enhance our righteousness at all by how we live. You understand what I'm saying? We don't, before God, enhance our righteousness at all by doing what we do. We are standing in the righteousness of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ has no part in the fake righteousness of men. So only those who entrust themselves to Christ will be saved. And therefore, when they worship, they will not worship out of a heart that's bent on the ritual. No, a heart that is born out of the divine achiever's accomplishment will worship out of a genuine heart of worship. And that genuine heart of worship is the outflow of the relationship they have with the divine achiever, Jesus Christ. Not to gain it. This is what Jesus is saying. We do all this stuff, but you don't do it. Here's why. And he gives this sad conclusion. Verse 39, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new. Because he says, the old is good enough. The sad conclusion. The religion of human achievement has no interest in the real Jesus. No interest in divine achievement. No interest in belief upon Jesus Christ alone. No one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. The old is good enough. That's just a simple little example. 
Jesus looks at the questioners and he says, you've been drinking the old wine of religion, of human achievement so long that you're satisfied in your direction. You have absolutely no interest in the gospel of divine achievement. You have no interest in who I am, no interest in me accomplishing anything for you. You believe in and of yourselves because you've been doing it so long that after all, you can't turn your back on that. In fact, you wouldn't turn your back on that because after all, that's good enough. It's good enough. People who have been in religions for so long are very comfortable very comfortable in their religion of self-attainment, human achievement. They are self-satisfied. So self-satisfied, they just grow comfortable in it. They have no interest in the gospel of divine achievement. They have no interest in the one who truly saves. Haven't you found this to be true in your own self, your own life? You look and you go to family and friends who are caught up in the religions of divine or human achievement all throughout all the different facets of that, whether it be in Catholicism or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or whatever it is, and you share the gospel with them and they're just satisfied. They say, that's good for you. That's good for you. I'm okay. What a sad conclusion. How is someone able to stand before a holy God and not be judged? How can any man stand before a holy God and not be condemned? Only one way. By standing in the righteousness of Christ. Standing in the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is only accounted to you through the religion of divine achievement. Divine achievement. Christ paid the price for sin on the cross. And so what is Jesus saying in the end? Simply this, the title of the message, complete change. Complete change. Total difference. Completely incompatible cannot be mixed, cannot be brought together, cannot be contained by what you do. It is complete change. With Jesus, everything must change. Everything. Let's pray. Father, When you sent your son to this earth, he came to be a man, but not be like men. He came to live unlike men, to live in complete submission to you, to your will, to fulfill the whole law as you had given out of worship to you that your name would be honored and glorified because you were glorifying the son even to the point of death on a cross even to the point in which in the mystery of it all you forsook your son that he would die for sin 
be the satisfaction of your wrath so that all who would believe upon him could have righteousness, not righteousness born in humanity and their achievements, but a righteousness born out of divine achievement, the righteousness of Christ, God in the flesh. Through faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven. We have life in Christ and we can live now, not for our own achievement, not trying to gain something in your eyes, but because we have everything in Christ. And so we live for you. We worship you. We read your word because it honors and glorifies you and it tells us about you and helps us to understand how we are to live in honor and glory to you. We interact with one another in the, in the body because that honors you, because we are commanded to edify one another and be hospitable to one another and carry out the one another's in your word so we interact with one another. We are committed and devoted to one another because of our righteousness we have in Christ. We go out as instruments of reconciliation to others and we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ even to those who are caught in the religions of human achievement, which are many. We proclaim Jesus Christ. And you, out of your faithfulness, open their eyes and some are saved and yet many Many are on the broad road to destruction who say, ah, oh, good. it's good enough. I like what I'm doing. And they reject the divine achiever for their own foolishness. Lord, help us to be faithful testimonies in word, in deed, in life. Those would see Christ in us come to know Jesus Christ as their own Savior. This we proclaim. This we pray. Give us wisdom in each of these things, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.